Secretary of State Antony Blinken went to China, presumably to lower tensions between the United States and China. But the very next day after he met with Xi Jinping, the head of China, Joseph Biden, the president of the United States, called Xi Jinping a dictator at a Democratic Party fundraiser when there was lots of media there. And that became the news, the news in the United States, and even more importantly for U.S.-China relations, the news inside of China. At the same time, the Wall Street Journal has again accused Cuba of becoming a base for Chinese spying against the United States. Where is all of this heading? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this week's episode of The Real Story on The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today, we're talking once again with Dr. Ken Hammond. Ken is a professor of East Asian and Global History in New Mexico State University. He's the founding director of the Confucius Institute at New Mexico State University. He's an activist and organizer with the organization Pivot to Peace. And he is the author of a new book, China's Revolution and the Quest for a Socialist Future, which you can find at 1804books.com. Ken Hammond, welcome back. Glad to be here. Well, Ken, I don't know, what's the right word? Fiasco, idiocy, stupidity, hubris, arrogance. I don't know, all of these adjectives seem to be working for me when it comes to the Biden administration's attempt at so-called diplomacy. First of all, let's start with your take. Well, I think it's the classic all of the above. We've seen American policy, if we can even call it that, towards China, just sort of flailing about fairly wildly for a while now. There's a a foundation, there's certainly a solid grounding of antagonism, of American efforts to thwart China's rise, China's reemergence as a player in global affairs. But in terms of of the actual conduct of American foreign policy, it appears to be veering almost wildly out of control. We have the Secretary of State at the very beginning of this administration up in Anchorage, Alaska, delivering this tirade, this lecture, this sort of disciplinary message to the Chinese that they better get with the program. And the Chinese made it very clear, Wang Yi, who's now uh, the, the chief foreign policy leader in China, I was very clear at that point that, you know, you just can't talk to us that way anymore. This is not really acceptable. We're not going to put up with this anymore. And it's been a lot of back and forth since then. We seem to have a situation where particularly the the president and the secretary of state, the, the sort of formal leaders of the government, are saying one thing and doing another over and over and over again. And there have been efforts apparent efforts to try to re-engage or restart some sort of dialogue or some sort of at least useful interaction with the Chinese. But uh, this keeps getting derailed. You know, Blinken was supposed to go to China last year, and that got derailed because a Chinese balloon 
which the Chinese say was a weather balloon that was supposed to go up the Central Pacific, got blown off course over the United States, and of course eventually shot down as a spy balloon, although nothing substantive has ever been demonstrated about that. And that meant that Blinken didn't go at that point. Some people thought that maybe that was a a sort of propaganda move to excuse his withdrawal from that visit. Now he's made this visit, and certainly it was not any kind of dramatic breakthrough or enhancement. But, you know, it, it represented perhaps some sort of effort to say we ought to be talking to one another. But then the very next day, uh, the president speaking in what wasn't, he wasn't giving a, a public speech somewhere. He was doing it for a private fundraiser. But nonetheless, this was reported immediately. And as you say, it, it became not just headlines here, but it was picked up, not surprisingly, by the media in China. So I think that it must be very difficult for ordinary people in China who are trying to follow what's going on in what is arguably one of the most important bilateral relations in our period as to what the Americans are up to. They say one thing, they do another. The president just bumbles around and and says various outrageous things. And there doesn't seem to be a steady hand sort of guiding this relationship, which has been driven further and further into very reckless and dangerous territory by all of the provocations and the South China Sea and the Strait of Taiwan. It doesn't inspire one with confidence in anyone on the American side taking any kind of truly responsible position and trying to to lower tensions, to really have dialogue, really have communication, when there are, of course, so obviously so many areas in which U.S.-China relations should be moving towards a more cooperative and a more interactive stance rather than this, this relentless antagonism and demonization. All right. I want to play the, there's two clips that we have. One is from a Singapore media outlet, and the other, I believe, is from TRT. I want to play them sequentially, Ken, and then I want to go back. It's kind of important because people have to understand this from the point of view of how the Chinese are viewing this. And again, this is Biden sort of behind closed doors, except there are reporters present. And you remember like when Hillary Clinton called Trump's supporters the deplorables, that was also at a fundraiser. She didn't really expect the whole media to pick up on it. I don't know why she would have thought that it wouldn't get picked up on. But when you talk about tens of millions of Americans who, because they're not voting for you, that they're the quote deplorables. Anyway, it's like one of those moments. Anyway, let's start with one of the media outlets. I don't know which one we have first. I think it's Singapore. Let's get started. Tensions have unexpectedly flared between Beijing and Washington, China branding U.S. President Joe Biden ridiculous and provocative for his remarks equating Chinese leader Xi Jinping to a, quote, dictator. Mr. Biden made the comment at a fundraiser in California just a day after his top diplomat had proclaimed progress in stabilizing bilateral relations in a face-to-face discussion with Mr. Xi himself. The U.S. president said Mr. Xi Jinping was embarrassed when an alleged Chinese spy balloon was shot down because he did not know it was there. He said the balloon was blown off course towards American airspace and the Chinese leader did not know what had happened. Not knowing what's going on is, quote, a great embarrassment for dictators, unquote, Mr. Biden told the gathering. 
The U.S. Air Force downed the suspected spy balloon back in February after it had flown over U.S. airspace. Of that incident led to Secretary of State Antony Blinken postponing a trip to Beijing. Of that trip finally took place over the weekend. Mr. Blinken met President Xi on Monday and the two sides reached a five-point consensus to boost dialogue, exchanges and cooperation. All right, and let's go right to the other video clip. It's short, but I want I want to have you hear it. I want the audience to to hear or to listen to it as well. U.S. President Joe Biden has called his Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping a dictator. Biden made that comment during a fundraiser in California. He also said Xi had been quote very embarrassed when a Chinese balloon recently blew off course and over the United States. Biden's comments come a day after a rare trip to Beijing by Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. That two-day visit was aimed at easing tensions between the U.S. and China. Yeah, it really seems like American diplomacy is at cross-purposes here. I'd say absolute incompetence, but it, you know, the Chinese are not going to view it simply as incompetence. They're going to think, this is how Biden really is talking about us you know, to his closest supporters because these are the donors and he's bragging about it. And I remember, Ken, when I talked to you on this show about the the ridiculous, gratuitous, meaning unnecessary shoot down of that balloon after it left the territory of the United States, after it went out into the Atlantic Ocean, I was a little bit circumspect about what the balloon actually was. I thought, well, yeah, all countries spy on each other. It could have been a spy balloon. It still was an extreme overreaction on the part of the United States, like this demonstrative shoot down of this slow moving balloon. But you, on the other hand, were less circumspect. You were like, this is just a balloon that went off course. And you talked about how it got caught in a certain air current. Anyway, in addition to all else, Ken, you are vindicated here because even Biden, while boasting, is basically saying Xi Jinping didn't know about the balloon because it was off course. It was blown off course. Anyway, let's get your reaction to all of this. Well, I think there's an element of this that's particularly unfortunate because in the wake of Blinken's visit, the publicity of that, the news reporting of that in China, there was a, a lot of discussion on the Chinese internet, you know, in cyberspace, the blogosphere or whatever we call it these days, and many uh, very, very popular people who write about, you know, China's foreign relations, China's relations with the U.S., were sort of, on the one hand, cautiously optimistic, saying, well, you know, this does appear to be an effort to open lines of communication. But they were also very clear in their feelings of, of sort of pride that, you know, China hasn't bent, it hasn't accommodated itself to the bullying from the United States. And so there was this sort of, as I say, cautiously optimistic feeling in the hours, you know, the, the day or so after Lincoln was there. But now that's like the balloon. That's been shot down, too, by Biden's sort of almost casual disregard for what he says. And I think that what you just said is quite right, that the Chinese will think, and quite frankly, I think, that what he says in that kind of moment is exactly what he really thinks. He thinks he can be unguarded. He thinks he can just be relaxed and say what's on his mind. Whereas when he has to make public speeches, or certainly, for example, last year when he had the video call with Xi Jinping 
that was very formal. That was very, yes, we're committed to the one China policy. Yes, we're going to respect our obligations. And yes, we should seek mutual benefit and common ground and all this. But the reality is that Biden and his administration and America's political elites, and to some extent, a lot of the corporate elites are very hostile to China. And they let their true agenda show through. And I think that that's exactly what we saw in these comments in California. And while it's unfortunate and disappointing, it's also it's important to recognize that and not to fall into some sort of delusion that there are those in the White House or in Congress or at the Pentagon who really think we ought to seek a more beneficial relationship. This is a very, very fraught relationship. And the United States, not incorrectly, perceives China as re-emerging as a significant player in the world and is fearful of losing its hegemonic position, its position as the dominant power that it has held for many decades now. And that fear, that fear of losing the power and the privileges they've enjoyed drives them to these erratic efforts, saying one thing, doing another over and over and over again in ways that appear sometimes confusing or I don't know, to signal that they haven't made up their mind. But I think when we hear this sort of statement from Biden in a relaxed, what he thinks of as a private context, that's very revealing of what their actual sentiments are. Yeah. And again, for our audience, those who are watching on YouTube, on the Breakthrough Channel, or listening as a podcast to the Socialist Program, I want to read exactly what Biden said. I want to read the actual words, because you might not get it. Again, he's He's in front of donors. It's a fundraiser. But the media is there. And he knows the media there is there. And Blinken, Blinken's earlier trip to China wasn't canceled by the United States. It was canceled by China after the U.S. shot down the balloon. So China canceled it. China said, no, you're going to have these gratuitous, provocative, unnecessary demonstrations of American military power by blowing up a slow-moving balloon after it's left your territory. Well, no, Blinken's not invited. So, so the U.S. has been hankering for this visit. So Blinken goes, and now he's trying to sort of mend fences a little bit. And Biden knows this. This is like a top priority. And the very next day, he says these words. Japan has increased its military budget exponentially. And guess what? When is the last time you heard Japan being interested in what's happening in the middle of Europe in a war and contributing to the help and support of a state, Ukraine? Well, to most Americans, they think, well, Japan paid attention to Europe when it was aligned with Nazi Germany and fighting the United States in World War II. But Biden is suggesting that this is a really good thing that Japan is sort of reestablishing open imperial ambitions. And then he goes on. And so things are changing. We put together in Southeast Asia, and by the way, I promise you, we're going to, don't worry about China. I mean, worry about China, but don't worry about China. Again, it's Biden. No, but really, I mean, it's China. China is real, meaning it has real economic difficulties. And here's the punchline. And the reason why Xi Jinping got very upset in terms of when I shot that balloon down with two boxcars full of spy equipment in it, he didn't know it was there. No, I'm serious. That's what's a great embarrassment for dictators when they don't know and didn't know what was actually happening. That wasn't supposed to be going on where it was. 
it was blown off course up through Alaska and then down through the United States, and he didn't know about it. When I shot it down, he was very, very embarrassed. I mean, this is the American president talking, recognizing that Blinken is there trying to, quote, mend fences, knowing that the media is there. Again, it's hubris, it's arrogance, because it's his real, true imperial feelings. And it's also stupidity, because obviously this is like igniting a firestorm inside of China at the very moment that they're trying to pretend like they could be friends with China. Amazing. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's amazing and, and it's disappointing and frustrating. I think that the Chinese are, <laughs> they would be happy to have a relationship go back to the way it was a few years ago, maybe 10, 15 years ago, where certainly the, you know, there was a recognition that China and the United States were distinct countries that had their own separate interests, but there was a lot of ways in which they could work with one another. Now, you know, the reality is it's the United States that changed that equation. It's the United States first under the Obama administration and then under Trump and now carrying on even more so under under Biden that has adopted this much more hostile attitude towards China. And that's largely because China has reached a point in its development and its reemergence where it no longer has to accommodate itself to American leadership or American dominance. And that drives the political elite here crazy because they, they want everybody in the world to fall in line with what they call America's interests, this so-called international rules-based order that China is not interested in subordinating itself to. And so that they recognize that China, as Biden was saying there, they recognize that, as he put it, China is real, that it's a real force, it's a real thing in the world, but they just can't bring themselves to have a, a pragmatic or a, heaven forbid, a, a sympathetic understanding. The Chinese, one of the things that's interesting in the statements that were made by Xin Gang, the foreign minister, by Wang Yi, the, the leader uh, with overall foreign responsibility, and by Xi Jinping, all three said that the problem with U.S.-China relations is a, a misperception of China on the part of the United States, that the United States doesn't have an accurate perception of China. It doesn't understand what China is all about. And I think that that's, in many ways, really the bottom line. The United States... American political leaders look at the world and they, they both want and expect everyone to model themselves on the United States, that they should model themselves on our kind of political system, on our kind of economic system, on our kind of social system, or at least some idealized version of those things. And China doesn't do that. China has its own long history, its own modern history, its own revolutionary struggles. It is a country that is distinct. It has its own political culture, if you will. And we simply refuse to engage with that, to recognize that, even at some of the most fundamental levels. And as long as that's true, as long as the U.S. tries to, to deal with China by jamming them into a, a mold that fits the United States but doesn't fit China, the relationship can never, be, can never really be functional or, or salvaged. You mentioned Wang Yi and his meeting with Blinken and Jake Sullivan back in Anchorage, right after Biden became the president of the United States. And that was a fiery session. Wang Yi is still a senior, perhaps the most senior diplomat on the Chinese side. Here's what the New York Times said about his 
discussions with Blinken when Blinken was there. Quote, Mr. Blinken heard some harsh words over his two-day visit. On Monday morning, Mr. Wang delivered a blunt message during a three-hour session at a guest house blaming Washington for all of the recent tensions. Mr. Wang said Washington should cooperate with Beijing instead of, quote, hyping the China threat theory, close quote, according to a, a Chinese government printout. He said that Washington must lift sanctions on China and stop suppressing the country's technological development. He accused the United States of recklessly interfering in China's internal affairs on such issues as Taiwan, which the United States, the New York Times says, supplies with weapons. And then it goes on. He really gave it to Blinken, not just about Taiwan, but about what's going on in Xinjiang, in the western part of China, what people here are always told about as the so-called Uyghur genocide, about Hong Kong, about Tibet. The Chinese government can, as you're making the point, I think so clearly, is sort of basically telling the U.S., you can't do this to us. We're not going to allow it. You can't interfere and expect that there won't be repercussions on our side. And whenever the Chinese talk like that, the U.S. media says the Chinese government's tone has changed so dramatically, and they're so bold and assertive and aggressive, perhaps hyper-aggressive, like wolf warrior diplomacy. And when you compare that to the way Biden or earlier Blinken and Sullivan were talking about China... All China is saying, the so-called hyper-aggressive diplomatic stance is, stop trying to destroy us. Stop meddling in our internal affairs. Stop trying to break away, as the U.S. is trying to do with Taiwan, a part of our country. And Taiwan has been recognized by the United States since 1972. Taiwan has been recognized as a part of China. So what the media in the U.S. characterizes as hyper-aggressive diplomacy on the part of China is simply China asserting that it's not going to be walked over and stomped over by the dominant military power in the world. And that becomes China's crime. So according to the U.S. media, the only way China could really please the United States when the United States does interfere in China, does threaten China, does sanction China, is for the Chinese to be humble and silent. In other words, that the Chinese should act like they're still semi-colonially enslaved people, precisely the thing the Chinese people made a revolution to end. Anyway, your thoughts? Well, yes, I think that, again, this is a, a story that has developed over the, the sweep of modern Chinese history, the sweep of the history of the People's Republic, that, you know, after Nixon's visit in 72, and we've talked about this before in a couple of contexts, you know, there's this period where the relationship between the United States and China seems to go forward step by step, you know, culminating in some ways with the establishment of formal diplomatic relations in 1979, and then on through you know, opening up for greater investment from the United States, the opening of enterprises there, the establishment of cultural exchanges, students going to study there, Chinese students and researchers coming to the United States. You know, there was a long period where, you know, it seemed like things were, were growing together. And that, of course, is also the period where China was 
you know, they were pursuing a certain objective, a certain goal, which was to develop their economy, to enhance the livelihoods of their people, to raise the level of material prosperity, to develop modern productive technologies, to, to you know, basically move their economy forward to a point where it would be prosperous enough that they could, as Xi Jinping likes to say, fulfill the original mission of the revolution and move towards a society of socialist distribution, a society where the fruits of labor are shared by those who produce them, right? But for a long time, especially the end of, you know, say the 1990s, the first decade of this century, the Chinese followed a, a course that was discussed by Deng Xiaoping. Again, they're not making a secret of this. It's not like they're trying to pull some scam of biding their time, keeping a kind of low profile, not pushing a lot of their particular ideological perspective because they needed to acquire, they needed to gain access to the capital and the knowledge and information and technologies from the global economy. And they've been extremely successful at doing that. And as we've seen, you know, we saw for many years, economic growth in China proceeding at double-digit annual rates, not quite that fast anymore, but still, you know, significantly above growth in the West. And for a long time, I think that many in the West, economic and political elites, convinced themselves that China was on a path which would lead them to, as they say, you know, a kind of color revolution, a change in the political nature of the state, of the economy, in ways that would bring them into alignment with the global capitalist system. And that was the expectation. And I think that, you know, there were various points along the way where Western academics or political thinkers convinced themselves that this was the, the trend that they could see developing. But by the second decade of this century, it began to be clear that, that that wasn't going to happen. And it's not just the election of Xi Jinping in 2012. Even before that, the way that China managed the 2008 global financial crisis, where they relied upon the socialist core of their economy to protect the, the tens of millions of workers who lost their jobs because consumer demand in the West dried up overnight. They fell back on, they had ready at hand, this infrastructure of socialist legality and socialist support that allowed the people of China to come through that crisis with a lot less suffering and a lot less stress than working people faced in the United States or in Western Europe or places like that. And China be began to realize, began to feel more confident, more self-confident, more aware of the accomplishments that they had attained. And so no longer needed to be quite so deferential, quite so accommodating. And I have to say that the Obama administration apparently picked up the signals on that fairly quickly because the, the so-called pivot to Asia back in 2011 was a direct response, was a direct effort to say, China isn't going to get on the bandwagon. China isn't going to convert itself into a subordinate component of the capitalist system. They seem to have their own agenda, and we better start to prepare to deal with that. And that's what the last, what, 12 or 13 years have really been devoted to, is this deepening antagonism, this effort to criticize China about everything. There's almost nothing China can do that gets a positive press in the West. But, you know, instead this drumbeat of demonization that we hear all the time. And I think that that reflects not just, not just that recognition that China is going to pursue its own path, but I think a, a real frustration on the part of American elites because they thought they knew how things were going to develop. And it turned out that that was never 
really the case at all. And so they, I'm sure they, you know, some may feel that, oh, they were tricked or that they were betrayed or something like that. But I think that drives a lot of the, the sort of recklessness in American conduct, that there's almost a sort of desire to punish China for daring to strengthen itself, for daring to improve the lives of its people. And so it's that's a very dangerous approach. We have so many problems in the world, so many challenges that working people around the world are facing that China is trying to address. And it would be better for the United States to work closely with them. But of course, the nature of our system here, the nature of our political elites here, basically precludes that as a possibility. A few days ago on, on June 19th, which was the 70th anniversary of the execution of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, both of whom were socialists. They were members of the Communist Party. They were political activists. They were organizing against the Korean War. They were accused and convicted of spying for the Soviet Union. And the mythology was that the Soviets got the nuclear weapons first the atomic bomb and then the hydrogen bomb because of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. The trial judge who sentenced them to death, Judge Kaufman, actually said as much. He said, all the tens of thousands of American young men who died in Korea died because you gave the Soviets the atom bomb. And if they didn't have the atom bomb, they would have never been so reckless as to use their Korean proxies to carry out an attempt to liberate South Korea. I mean, it was like an amazing story. And they were put to death. And the point of my tweet is, was that the old Cold War included this terrible witch hunt directed against political activists, especially against people who were socialists or communists, or people who had signed petitions for peace or disarmament or for better relations with the Soviet Union. And the media played a huge role in that. The media played a huge role. The New York Times whipped that up. So did the Washington Post. So did NBC and CBS. All of the media played its role. And now we're in a new Cold War, and it feels very much like the same sort of witch hunting is taking place. Chinese researchers, academics, Political activists are being arrested with ridiculous charges. They're being bankrupted because if you get arrested, you have to spend a lot of money for a lawyer. And even if the charges are BS, even if the charges are not real, even if they're false, you have to basically devote the rest of your life to trying to not go to prison. And all the people who are political activists with you or researchers with you or media activists with you, they all get the hint that. This could happen to them too. So we're in this new era where all of the similar elements of the old Cold War, including the witch hunt, are back. But there's a difference, Ken, which is that the Soviet Union and the socialist camp were basically economically walled off from the West. And the U.S. walled them off. I mean, yes, the Soviets had the monopoly on foreign trade. Etc. But the Soviets always wanted to do trade with the West, whether it was under Lenin or Stalin or later Khrushchev, Brezhnev. The Soviets always wanted to integrate into the world economy, and they were barred from doing so. So as the United States waged this economic war, covert war, military war, diplomatic war against the Soviet Union and the socialist camp, it didn't have a profound impact on the American economy, except that it incentivized more weapons production. But it's different with China. 
Because as the United States goes to economic war against China, China has played an important role, not only for China's own economic development, but as a main player in the world economy, which even if the Communist Party is the ruling party in China, the world economy that it's integrated into is dominated by world capitalism and by the institutions of capitalism. And so this effort to to decouple, which is to basically carry out an economic war against the Chinese, barring now Biden has made it illegal for U.S. and Western companies to sell advanced microchips to China. And of course, the U.S. still is the leader in the production of this kind of technology, not just the United States, but some of the European countries as well. So it's a really devastating impact potentially on China. That's its intent. China's trying to overcome it. It's going on a fast track to develop its own capacities. But again, because of the historic relationship between the colonizers and the colonized, or the colonizers and the semi-colonized in the case of China, It's a big march. It's a big road ahead to kind of catch up, given these headwinds. But what about the impact on the Western capitalist economy? It seems to me that with all of the growing economic distress, and you can see all of the signs of it everywhere, the dialectic here is that the United States is waging an economic war against China, which is integrated and principally in a principal part of the world economy that can't but hurt the whole global capitalist economy, which in turn will hurt the U.S. capitalists. Anyway, this is a a conundrum for U.S. policymakers that didn't really exist in the first Cold War. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting area to take a look at because, you know, the economies, the American and Chinese economies are incredibly closely intertwined. You know, China, it holds tremendous amounts of American public debt, for example, There's investment by American corporations. I know you and I today are both working on MacBooks. And, uh, you know, all this technology is being cranked out in factories in China. You know, your shoes. I mean, all this stuff that we have. And Walmart is the largest purveyor of Chinese goods in the United States. So the integration of the American and Chinese economies on all kinds of levels is just massive. And so the idea that, that somehow the United States might provoke a war over the Taiwan Straits. Yes, of course, it would be devastating in Taiwan. It would cause a lot of damage in China itself, but it would also be devastating here in the United States. It would disrupt supply chains. It would disrupt the immediate viability of a lot of American corporations. We had this whole kerfuffle recently about raising the debt ceiling. If China were to dump its holdings in government bonds, the American economy would basically collapse on the financial sector. It's just so absurd to be playing with fire when these economies are so closely intertwined. But even on a much more mundane level, you can see that the trade war, the tariffs that have been imposed, which have only been expanded and enhanced under Biden, can have very, very direct material effects on the lives of American people. And just one, again, it's a very mundane example, but solar panels, right? China has the most sophisticated solar panels in the world. They are more efficient and they cost less, significantly less, than solar panels which are produced in the United States. We face tremendous challenge in terms of global warming, climate change, energy production, alternative energy here in the United States. And many people are, you know, perhaps interested in in maybe installing more solar energy capability. 
But the costs of that are falsely inflated for American consumers because of tariffs that make the import of Chinese goods, which are of superior quality and lower price, impossible. That's the explicit objective of the tariffs on Chinese solar panels is to keep them out so that Americans will have to buy more costly and less efficient panels produced here in the United States. So that's a direct consequence that on the one hand can affect individual consumers, but it also affects our ability to address energy concerns, to address this existential crisis of the environment. So the the levels on which this is a bad idea the antagonism towards China, the levels on which that's a bad idea go from these very day-to-day mundane things of what you're buying, the price of things you're buying at Walmart, all the way up to you know the U.S. Treasury bonds, trillions of dollars of U.S. Treasury bonds that would be vulnerable if the conflict were to burst into an actual military clash. One of the most important dramatic moments in the first Cold War was the Cuban Missile Crisis. The Soviets placed medium-range missiles in Cuba, 90 miles from the United States. At the moment, the United States was encircling the Soviet Union by putting missiles in countries all around the USSR. So the Soviets did a tit-for-tat. Fidel, on the basis of solidarity with the Soviet Union, accepted the placement of those missiles in Cuba at great, of course, a great sacrifice. I mean, the Cubans were basically risking everything. The United States discovered that the missiles existed. A U-2 plane or U-2 spy planes detected them. Became a major moment of global crisis, October 1962. The Soviets were given an ultimatum by the Kennedy administration that if you don't immediately stop the production of those missiles and withdraw them, We are prepared to go to war with you, the Soviet Union, and the U.S. set up a blockade, a literal naval blockade to intercept Soviet ships coming towards Cuba. And at the very last moment, Nikita Khrushchev blinked, or the Soviet leadership blinked. They said, okay, we're going to take the missiles out of Cuba. Privately, secretly, the U.S. then signed an agreement with the Soviet Union that the U.S. would not invade Cuba. So, There was another element of the covenant that wasn't reported, but of course, extremely important because the U.S. had just invaded Cuba with the Bay of Pigs invasion the year before. The reason I'm mentioning this right now, Ken, is that the Wall Street Journal has been running really dominating stories that were at first denied by someone in the Department of Defense, so-called Department of Defense in the U.S., that China is building spy bases in Cuba to spy on the United States. And so you have the sense that this could become the next crisis, the next sort of cliff around which or at which people could be jumping off. Very sensational. The Cubans denied it. The Cuban vice foreign minister came right out and said, no, that's a complete lie. We don't have any foreign bases in our country at all. The only foreign base in our country is Guantanamo, where the U.S. stole a part of Cuba when it colonized Cuba or semi-colonized it during the invasion of Cuba in 1898 in the so-called Spanish-American War. And the U.S. still retains a naval base in Cuba, Guantanamo, the only place in Cuba where people actually are tortured. And, you know, the Cubans said, no, we're not doing this. The Chinese came out and said, no, that's not true. It's a lie. 
Now, here's the next article from the Wall Street Journal. It just came out. China has maintained a spy base in Cuba since at least 2019 when Donald Trump was president. And the two countries already jointly run four eavesdropping stations on the island, according to U.S. officials. In addition, Beijing and Havana are negotiating to establish a new joint military training facility on Cuba's northern coast. Beijing's efforts to expand its intelligence gathering from Cuba are continuing, said the White House. That's the Biden White House. So earlier there was a denial, but now it appears that Biden is going with the story. Following a 2019 upgrade to its intelligence collection facilities on the island, Beijing, quote, will keep trying to enhance its presence in Cuba, and we will keep working to disrupt it, said a White House official Monday. U.S. officials, and I'm going to end with this, U.S. officials have long said China's government, get the language, might use the nation's telecom companies to spy. The U.S. has been engaged in a years-long campaign to persuade allies, meaning all the Western countries, to shut Huawei in particular out of their next-generation telecommunications networks. Huawei has said it wouldn't spy for China. It's also going after, the in the same article, the Chinese corporation ZTE. The U.S. is waging these wars against China's high technology companies that are doing better in the global market than U.S. companies, using, I think, security, national security as a pretext. But here we go again, Ken. It's Cuba as a base for China spying on the Americans. And before you talk about this and your own take on it, I also want to make this point. Russia said that it would not tolerate the U.S. placing not just surveillance equipment, but advanced missiles on its border with Ukraine, right? I mean, that was the precursor to the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. The Russians said, we're never going to allow you to place conventional or nuclear missiles on our border targeting us, missiles that have a, a short flight time. That's not going to happen. And also the U.S. said the Russians have no right to tell the Ukrainians who their security partners could be, meaning if Ukraine wants to join NATO, that's only up to Ukraine and it's only up to NATO. Russia has no, can say nothing about it. But let's say Cuba did have a spy arrangement with China. Wouldn't that, based on the premise of the logic provided by the United States regarding Ukraine, wouldn't Cuba have the right to pick its own national security partners, including countries that could assist it militarily and with intelligence? Anyway, the hypocrisy, the double standard, but now the new hype, again, Cuba as the new sort of red flag put out as the provocation for another crisis with China at the very moment that Biden or Blinken said they wanted to have a thaw in U.S.-China relations. Yeah, there's so many ways in which this story with Cuba is, I don't even know what the right terminology is to refer to it. If you think about it historically, you know, thinking back to the 62 missile crisis, as you noted, the United States became aware of what was happening because we were routinely carrying out espionage flights over the island. And we continue to do so. And we continue to do that over countries all around the world. 
So that's, you know, I mean, just thinking about the the uproar over this balloon that blew off course and drifted across the United States compared to the the day-to-day conduct of the American intelligence community all over the planet. And this idea that whatever we do is fine, but if anybody else does it, it's unacceptable. And of course, another aspect of the Cuba situation is that, you know, Cuba has been under embargoes, economic embargoes from the United States uh, since the early 1960s. And that has inflicted tremendous hardship and challenges on the Cuban economy and on the Cuban people. It has been a relentless posture of hostility and antagonism and demonization of the Cuban system and the Cuban leadership and really of the Cuban people. That is exactly what they wish they could do to China. But the lure of the Chinese market, the lure of the profitability of Chinese labor for American corporations overwhelmed any possibility of China to really isolate China that way. And now these efforts to impose various kinds of tariffs or or sanctions or things like that on China are very, very difficult for the Americans to navigate. And as we were talking about before, and in many instances, they're kind of shooting themselves in the foot to maintain these kinds of this kind of hostility. And of course, <laughs> it's just so blatantly hypocritical that the United States should get worked up over the possibility that China and Cuba might cooperate in some way to gain access to information about the conduct of the United States, which is overtly hostile to both countries from Cuba, which is so much closer to the United States, when the United States has troops stationed on Taiwan, which is a part of China, stationed on Chinese territory. They have China surrounded by, you know, warships, troops, missiles, submarines, not just listening posts, but, you know, right there all around the country. Again, it's this idea that the United States can go anywhere, do anything, and that's perfectly fine because we have the international rules-based order that we made the rules and they're made to order for us, you know. So it just boggles the mind somehow that they can get up and say these things with a straight face that China's being so provocative, China's being so so reckless and dangerous. When China has one military base outside of its country, that's in Djibouti in Northeast Africa, which is part of a United Nations anti-piracy force, and it's located directly next to the American, much larger American base there. So that's the one base that China has outside of its territory. They have relations, they have diplomatic and economic relations with Cuba. Uh, It wouldn't surprise me, and I wouldn't think that it was problematic for them to try to have a better assessment of what their concerns about the United States and its conduct might be. You know, and if Cuba and China should share an agenda on that, that would only be logical. But this idea that China is trying to turn Cuba into some sort of advanced military base or something like that just seems ludicrous. And I think that, you know, time will tell. But this is the kind of story that comes out and grabs headlines and gets everybody worked up and then, you know, will likely fade away and may never be <laughs> demonstrated one way or the other. But the hypocrisy of it, the double think, will go on and on and on. Yeah. And if we can put that photo of the bases back up on the screen, I want to just say a few words about that, because I think that graphic was very, very powerful. You have... The military bases, you can see them, Japan, right off the, you know, not far from China. That's littered with U.S. military bases. In South Korea, 
where the United States military has operational control over the South Korean military, which is a huge military. The U.S. has operational control. I mean, can you imagine in a moment of crisis, military leadership and decision making reverts to the Americans in South Korea, a country that has the 10th largest economy in the world? It's really the United States. So you have all along China, starting with what the United States calls the Indo-Pacific region now, all the way from the lower part of South Asia, south of the Indian subcontinent through Southeast Asia, and then all up along China's coast, on the eastern side of China's coast, military bases, military installations, surveillance operations. And you can see if you keep that map up, I mean, at one point, the U.S. was fighting a war on China's border. That was between 1950 and 53. Before that, by the way, in 1949, when the revolution happened, as you well know, Ken, because you're a China expert, U.S. military was still strafing the city of Shanghai. I mean, they were actually bombing Shanghai after the Chinese revolution in 1949. By June 1950, and June 25th, 1950, and here we are again. This is almost the anniversary once again of the end of the military conflict, which came in July 27th, 1953. The U.S. went to war and killed, well, the Encyclopedia Britannica says 4 million plus Koreans died. That was one out of every five Koreans. Then in Vietnam, millions of people died as the U.S. occupied Vietnam and took over from French colonialism. In the Philippines, which is basically just a military outpost for the United States, and the United States always complains now about Philippine sovereignty and why China's, you know, violating the Philippine sovereignty. Really? Really? The United States invaded Philippines and killed a million Filipinos in 1899 and created a literal colony of the United States in the Philippines until after World War II, in which time it became a semi-colony. So when you look at what's actually happening and then you read the facile media, the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, they're not media. They're just organs of disinformation and propaganda for the new war drive. And everything that our people, the people in the United States are being told is that they should hate and fear China, that China's evil, heavy dose of anti-Chinese racism thrown into the mix because that has a long tradition in the United States. When you look at the whole thing, even at the moment, I want to end with this, Ken, even at the moment that the Biden administration seems so eager, so eager to patch things up with China. And I think that was mainly so some of its allies and semi-allies wouldn't believe that the U.S. is on a collision course with China because they actually want good relations with China. At the moment, the U.S. is doing that It can't stop itself from either expressing language like Xi Jinping is a dictator the moment after he was courteous enough to give a 35-minute meeting to Blinken. And the Wall Street Journal, a leading organ of U.S. media, is like promoting that China's the big threat to world peace because of Cuba. They can't help themselves. Like there's this book, Addicted to War. It's about the United States. It's about United States capitalism. This system is addicted to war. And the target right now is China. And that's why I think this show and your book, your new book about China, China's quest for a socialist future, 
it's vital that progressive forces really learn the arguments, know the facts, and be able to do sort of battle in this battle of ideas, in this battle against the propaganda war, which is associated with a very real war drive against China. That's why what we're doing, what we're saying, what we're writing could not be overstated in terms of its importance. You have the last word. Go ahead. Well, I certainly agree with that. I think that, you know, we face such an overpowering message coming from across the political spectrum. Hostility to China is one of the few bipartisan stances that is taken by Congress. Everybody is trying to out-macho each other about who's going to be tougher on China. And, uh, you know, the mass media, the corporate media falls pretty much into line. There might be some subtle differences, but basically it's a it's pretty much a lockstep message being transmitted of bad China doing bad things and, you know, good America doing good things. It's an uphill battle, to say the least, and yet it's one which obviously needs to be fought. Those of us who want to see a better future for the American people, who want to see a better future for people in the world, who want to see a planet we can continue to live on in the coming decades, know that fighting against global capitalism and American imperialism, these are fundamental challenges, and we have to push this struggle as assiduously as we can. So that's why, you know, efforts like this and the publishing that we do and the organizing that we do, this is something which I think, you know, it has to go forward. Uh, sometimes might feel a little Sisyphean, but I think overall, we see people being more questioning. We see people being more interested in the issues that confront us. And as these crises deepen and as the challenges that face the American people become ever starker, we see upticks in, in the labor movement. We see upticks in militancy across the country in a variety of ways. And I think that this kind of educational work, this kind of trying to raise the level of political awareness is something that we simply, you know, we, we can't put it down. We have to keep our dedication going. All right. For our audience, buy the new book written by Ken Hammond. It's called China's Quest for a Socialist Future. It's an amazing book. It's really good for people who are People who are both knowledgeable about China, and of course, Ken is one of the foremost experts on China, but it's also really good if you're new to the issue. It really introduces you to an important stretch of Chinese history in a very accessible way. You can buy the book by going to 1804books.com and ordering it. It'll be sent to you in your home in a couple days. Ken is also about to start a nationwide speaking tour. And that speaking to her, I think you'll be at the People's Forum on Saturday, July 1st yep. with Sheila Shao. And then all around the country, we're just in the beginning of organizing this speaking to her. But Ken Hammond will be coming to a city near you. And I really encourage you, all of us, to show up, to learn about it, get a book signed by Ken Hammond, foremost expert, and to participate in this discussion about how to fight against a system that is indeed addicted to war. Professor Hammond, thank you so much. Always glad to be here, Brian. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. 
We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. 